Section 67 of the Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill. Pantheism. A pantheistic plea. Pantheism, which teaches that God and the universe are one, has been held by so many eminent thinkers that it cannot be so utterly foolish as it is sometimes considered, and the tendency toward pantheism is rapidly increasing. The answer. There never was a system of thought so absurd as not to number among its adherents some wise heads who were not wholly wise and in whose minds there was considerable room for philosophic nonsense. Readers of Emerson, no doubt, feel they are conversing with a thinker in whom there is a dash of genius. Stimulated, perhaps at times elevated, by his thought, which is a product of his genius, they are oftentimes unaware that what they admire so much is an embroidery of sentiment worked into a texture of the flimsiest pantheistic philosophy. Emerson, destitute of any sound philosophical training and attracted by the speculations of the German school, has emulated his masters by playing the part of seer rather than that of a painstaking searcher after truth. His reasons are as two grains of wheat hidden two bushels of chaff. You shall seek all day ere you find them. And if you are fortunate enough to find them at all, when you have them they are not worth the search. It was the foggy, subjective philosophy of Fichte, Schelling, and Hegel that gave so great an impulse to modern pantheistic tendencies. And if pantheism is welcomed by many, it is because they are interested in getting rid of a personal god, or because they are attracted to a system which seems, though it only seems, to realize one of the principal aims of all philosophizing, the reduction of multiplicity to unity. They take what is offered them by the pantheist, but without reckoning the cost. There have been no really great thinkers in modern times whose names have been associated with pantheism, whereas, against pantheism, are arrayed nearly all the great lights of the scientific world in all time. Pantheism teaches that the world is God and that God is the world. Things may seem to differ from one another in substance, but in reality there is only one substance, and all things are modes of being or manifestations of the one infinite and eternal substance. We human beings, with all that we think and do, are but a part of the grand panorama of changing phenomena that marks the evolution of deity. The pantheistic deity is not a personal god, intelligent, distinct from the world and free in his acts. He cannot be prayed to, he cannot be adored, he is simply the world, manifesting itself variously, now as brute matter, now as having animal life, and again as knowing and loving. He is not a sovereign being, and men are not subject to him. He is not the fountain source of the moral law. In fact, there is, strictly speaking, no moral law, as things happen as they must, and human freedom is a chimera. It is only too plain that pantheism is virtual atheism. A pantheistic god is no god at all. The essential absurdity of pantheism should be evident to anyone who realizes what is implied in its teachings. The wonder is that even a limited number of intellectual men should accept the doctrine apparently without any regard to its logical consequences. It is easy enough to think of the universe as a unit, and then give it a name, the be-all, or the all-one, or whatever other name is preferred, but if one gets no further than that, he is still in the region of fancy. It is easy to construct a system of pantheism and give it an air of scientific completeness. It is quite another thing to reconcile all the contradictions which the system involves. Let any pantheist weigh well the words he uses in describing his system, and we warned him he will not be a pantheist five minutes longer. The pantheist does not simply read a unifying principle into the aggregate of things which are substantially different, 
we Christians do as much, though in a different way, but goes the whole length of asserting that all things constitute but one substance, one nature which evolves itself, by some law of necessity, in various forms of being and in varying phenomena. What meaning can the terms substance and nature convey to the mind of a pantheist? Given a certain substance, whatever be its nature, can it evolve itself in contradictory qualities? Can it be wise and foolish, for instance, at the same time and in regard to the same objects in the moral order? And yet the pantheist combines all the wisdom and folly in the world in one being, whom, or which, he identifies with the world. The same is true of all other categories of thought, feeling, and action. No matter how incompatible two attributes may seem to be, they are found side by side in the accommodating nature of the all-one. A pantheist who knew his own mind would say, or might say, on observing any phenomenon of mind or matter, that is the all-one manifesting itself in that particular way. If he should light on a friend who carried in his head a very unsound philosophy, he would say, there is the all-one under the aspect of a philosopher. If the next moment he should meet another friend whose philosophy was a flat contradiction of the first friend's, he would say with equal complacence, ah, there is the all-one again under the aspect of a philosopher. He evidently unites all sorts of contradictions in his conception of the pantheistic deity. Morality and immorality, wisdom and folly, knowledge and ignorance, must be ascribed to this one all-embracing being. If all things are one, it is easy to imagine what strange antics the all-one must play. He is at once the lion and the lamb when the latter is devoured by the former. He kills himself and yet survives his killing when a thunderbolt strikes a man dead, for thunderbolt and victim are identified in the one being. Experience, aided by reason, tells us that many things differ from one another substantially. Living beings, for instance, cannot be confounded with non-living. One chemical element cannot be identified with another. The individuals of a species differ, and among human beings, one differs from another and lives, so to speak, in a little world of his own. Has pantheism discovered a cryptic philosophy which reduces all things to one? The truth is that the pantheist is seized by the modern craze for reducing multiplicity to unity by new and as yet undiscovered ways. He is not satisfied, or professes not to be satisfied, with the Christian conception of the origin of things, a conception at once simple and sublime according to which, before the universe was created, all things existed in God, not formally, that is to say, as they are when created, but eminently, or in a much higher manner, inasmuch as God had from eternity not only a conception of the universe in all its details, but also the power to bring it into existence. The pantheist professes not to be satisfied with the evidence for this genesis of things, and straightaway turns to a philosophy abounding in manifest contradictions. Perhaps the crowning absurdity of pantheism is its conception of the way in which the All-One evolves itself and advances toward its perfection. First of all, the only determinate existence it has consists in the changing facts or phenomena of the universe. Prior to and apart from these phenomena, it is nothing determinate. And yet the entire evolution of things is produced by something inherent in its nature, to which, therefore, we must refer back all things as to their efficient cause. In other words, it is the cause of determinate existence and yet has no determinate existence of its own, which is a palpable absurdity. The primal cause of things must have an existence of its own, and therefore a determinate mode of existence, otherwise it is nothing. Hence, the pantheist presents us with the idea of production out of nothing in a new form. He repudiates the idea of creation, which is the production of a thing out of nothing by the act of an omnipotent god, and then turns to contemplate nothing producing something without the aid of divine omnipotence. The trite objection against creation urged by pantheists and others, to wit, 
that out of nothing nothing is made, may now be turned against this bundle of contradictions which passes under the respectable name of pantheism. As to the bearings of the system on morality, logically the pantheist cannot speak of morality, for morality supposes a universal moral law which has its primal origin in a personal divine lawgiver. Pantheism can furnish no such basis for morality. The pantheist may profess to recognize with the rest of men two opposite moral aspects in human actions, but why he should call the one good and the other bad, he has no reason furnished by this system of philosophy. With him, morality is essentially a matter of convention or of expediency, and thereby ceases to be morality. Pantheism, nevertheless, seems to have a poetical aspect, which excites a certain effervescence in minds capable of feeling a delight in the thought of their identity with the great absolute. But poetry is one thing, objective truth another. Though, for the matter of poetical inspiration and human consolation, what pantheistic idea ever rose to the level of the beauty and sublimity of the Christian conception of man's ultimate perfection, as realized in his conscious and never-ending union with the God whose perfection is infinite? The pantheist finds his consolation in drifting with the ages and ending in nothing. End of section 67. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.